Hey everybody, welcome to this week's Q&As. It is Thursday afternoon, so hopefully everybody had enough time to get their questions in. So let's jump in and see what we got. First up, over on Floatplane, Steve Wells wanted to chime in on the discussion of audio testing and audio formats, and also wanted to remind everybody that there's quadraphonic audio, which used two channels to encode four channels. They're not aware of anything since the 80s that used it. Same here, actually. But Steve also put links to a couple of different surround sound tests that they used. And in fact, a lot of people had sent me those over the past week. So I'm going to put links to that in the description for anything that's already available. And I'm probably going to be using most of these. Anything that's really uh, more than one channel over just a standard 2.0 left and right cable. I'm going to try to add a lot of this stuff into that video. And then hopefully have it finished up within a couple of weeks. Um, every time I say that, I end up getting slammed with something completely different or something new and exciting pops up or I'm like, ooh, I gotta get this right now. So I'll swing back around to it. But I really, really appreciate everybody who's been chiming in. Also, uh, Steve wants to know, was my motorbike a 90s Kawasaki by any chance? They had a GPZ 500 that had the same second gear problem. I think it was a 97? or a 99. I could be wrong, but GSXR I had that I loved was a, a 02. And I bought that one brand new, and then I got the Kawasaki. Um, I, I had to sell the awesome bike I had. I was short on cash, so then I ended up getting the Kawasaki, and then I think I ended up getting uh, an, an older R1 as well, but I can't remember which one was the oldest one. But yeah, it, it actually sounds... Like the, I think it is the late 90s, so that's pretty funny. You had the, that really was an ongoing issue with those motorcycles. Next up, Marco Vizzini wants to know a little bit about making custom SCART to Framemeister cables and how sync strippers play into that. First and foremost, you should not need a sync stripper in that SCART to Framemeister cable at all, period. Um, there was a time where people didn't know as much about how these signals worked, and they were trying to figure out why certain things would or would not work on the Framemeister. And then not only did we get better at figuring out how to shape the signals in the cables themselves, but then there was a firmware update for the Framemeister that also improved compatibility. So I would say absolutely do not use one at all and just see what happens, and you should be fine as long as you're on the last firmware for it. Now, you did have another question about what happens if you run a sync stripper through a sync stripper. So let's just say hypothetically that Marco has a setup where this is required. It's very unlikely, but hypothetically speaking, then what would happen if somebody brought over an RGB SCART cable that had a sync stripper in that? And as long as the circuit was built correctly, it should be fine but there's absolutely no guarantee unless you put it on a scope and double check it, um, which, you know, there are cheaper scopes out there now. I'm going to, you know, teaser, I'm working on something showing that off, but really there's no true way to tell unless you test it. And unless you know how to test it properly, you could blow out your frame meister just testing. So I would strongly recommend not using a sync stripper at all in basically in anything, unless you know for a fact you need it. The number one reason you might need it any kind of switch, like an Extron crosspoint, that will not sync on Luma or composite video. That is 99% of the cases, um, maybe 90% of the cases. There are a couple of RGB monitors that require higher TTL level sync. So, and uh, not only that, same thing, they can't use Luma or composite video. So that's another common scenario. But 
never, I, I haven't heard of one recently with the frame meister. So my polite suggestion is don't do it. Just make a basic pass-through cable and make sure you're using all of the proper cables for your consoles. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Next up, Retro YPVPR found a $40 RGB to component and S-Video converter and wants to know if I had heard anything about it. Um, I have not seen this one before, although it seems to take either RGB S via RCA or a SCART cable and convert that to either component video or S-Video. And I'm not really sure if it's safe to use both outputs at the same time. I would have to look at the circuit. But it looks like that same uh, that same developer from China that makes the tiny little boards and then has a bigger board that that mounts to. So he basically uh, he'll make a run of production of simple circuits and then add that to whatever devices he wants. I haven't spoken with him directly. I've spoken with him through other people, um, and he he seemed cool. Seemed open to feedback. Didn't seem like. You know, I, I hate to sound negative, but very often you'll run into developers where you ask questions, make a suggestion, and they're like, who are you to talk to me that way? And that's, it was the opposite. He seemed very cool and, and wanted to know, uh, you know, more about how we were using these things and had some suggestions. So um, it's also similar to a lot of the other circuits that I've seen. So while I have not tested this one, um, you know, it might be worth a try. There are a few things that you might need to worry about, and without a scope, you really it would be very hard to tell for sure what it's doing and and what it would be compatible with. So, um, is it a clone? I don't think so. Uh, I think all of the devices that have those designs on them are are made uh, originated from the same person, and I don't think anybody cloned anybody else with that. It's a complete guess, though. <laughs> I have no clue. Um, does it add any lag? or produce any brightness or color issues. Lag is most likely no. Devices like this are converters, and much like the other ones that I've tested, there should be zero milliseconds of latency. You should still be able to use them with light guns. However, um, as far as the brightness or color issues, that's another thing that you would have to check, and that could vary based on console. So you could use three consoles that are perfect, and one has weird brightness issues. Um, Also, what resolutions would it work with? Now, obviously, if you're talking about S-Video output, that's not going to work with 480p. But if you were looking to use that with the Dreamcast, like it was advertised as in that listing, um, will it work with all of the different resolutions? So I'm not really sure. Um, If I had time, I would buy one and check it out, but I don't really have time, and I definitely don't have the budget to keep buying all this cool stuff that I see. But uh, it seems pretty neat. 
So uh, if you were willing to give it a shot, cool. Just know that whenever you test stuff like this, there's always a chance something could go wrong in your setup. Probably not likely for something like this, but I have to give that warning. And I would give that warning about any product that we didn't have scope measurements for just because, you know, analog video signals are weird sometimes. Uh, second, they're interested to try that Genesis Model 1 mod that I talked about in the roundup. Are the boards available for purchase? Nope, that project was just completely open source and handed out to the community. There were a few people that were also taking a look at it and seeing if you could accomplish the same thing with slightly different methods. And it seemed, now this is seemed, you know, only a few people have tested this, that on certain motherboard revisions, Genesis, you could kind of do the same thing on the board itself, on the motherboard without using an external device, and you would just have to cut some traces and run some shielded cables, but not all motherboard revisions, whereas this one should be working with all Model 1 revs. Obviously, some are going to produce less noise than others just because inherent to how those boards are built. Um, but I'm just kind of letting the community deal with this one. And if a permanent or, or if a solid solution is figured out, then it may, and maybe this is the solid solution, then hopefully somebody will throw them up for sale. But if you'd like to make your own, the files are uh, right in that post, which I'll link here. And hopefully, uh, you know, it's not too hard to assemble. Basically, if you have the ability to solder to these tiny little pins that you're going to need to solder to and, and lift a VDP pin, then you should be able to hand bake these. Uh, I don't know if, uh, I think I only have the panelized version. Um, so you'll end up with a ton of boards, but it would be the same cost as just a few. So I'll leave the link to that for anybody interested. And, um, you know, if this project turns out to be as cool as I, I hope, then maybe we'll have solid installation guides on the wiki. Maybe this is the board we use, or maybe somebody's going to come up with a more creative way to figure this out. I don't know. I, I, I love seeing what the community comes up with. And that's kind of the beauty of open source, right? We put a bunch of time into this. I put a bunch of time myself into the testing. But if somebody comes out with a better idea, that's awesome. It's open source. I didn't, you know, I, hopefully this doesn't sound shitty, but it's like <laughs> I didn't invest a ton of money into buying boards and, and stocking them. So now it gives the community time to check it themselves and see if there's a slightly better way to accomplish it. So I, I kind of love having that pressure taken off of my shoulders for this one, but I'll leave a link for anybody interested. Tony Escobar has an original analog NT and can't seem to get a signal out of it. Now, the original Analog NT was not the FPGA-based version like the Mini. That was a reverse-engineered NES motherboard that either had Tim Worthington's NES RGB kit integrated in or Kevin's high-def NES kit. And Tony said there's no HDMI connection, so it's got to be the one with Tim's uh, circuit built in. And that should work without much issue. Now, there are a pinout thing that you would have to worry about because I believe those use the same D sub output that the other analog NTs, out, uh, even the minis outputted. I believe it's the same pinout as the DAC, could be wrong about that. So you would need to make sure that you got a cable that's correct. You said you purchased one from Retro Access and got a little bit of signal to come, to, come through, but it was incredibly distorted. So it sounds like it sounds like you need one that's wired directly for analog cables. RetroAccess makes those, so it could have just been a communication thing. Maybe you just said VGA to SCART and not specifically for analog. You could try, I believe you could just use a VGA cable and use something like an HD15 to SCART, which is just a, a passive adapter that would allow you to connect it to your Tink 5X. 
Although I haven't tried that with analog products in a long time, and I completely forgot if that's a thing. Um, you could get a VGA to 5BNC cable, not a VGA to 4BNC cable, and either connect that directly to an RGB monitor, or then just get a BNC to SCART cable to plug into your RetroTank 5X, um, which, you know, now you're buying a lot of stuff here, but unfortunately that's just kind of how it goes with troubleshooting. And if that doesn't work, there might actually be something wrong with your original console. So my first suggestion would be, do you have any other way to test it other than the RetroTank 5X? And that direct into an RGB monitor would be the best. And the second suggestion would be, um, if not, do you have any other cables or, or maybe you'd have to purchase the cables I'm talking about. So um, kind of follow up with those troubleshooting steps and let me know what you think. Hopefully it's just an easy cable issue and you're only going to be out a few bucks for an extra cable, but um, fingers crossed. Also, welcome. First time question, but Tony's been supporting for a better part of this year. So thank you very much. And uh, hopefully I could do you right with this answer. Next, a couple of things from Oliver Clare. First, they were able to do a lot of updates to the wiki post about sound capabilities from game consoles, which is now a really great resource. So I'll link to that. Thank you for your work, Oliver. Everybody, please check that out if you're interested. And they also continue to talk about newer AVRs that might be able to handle both newer and older formats. And while I have not tested a single AVR that's uh, 4K120 compatible, the one that I have sitting right there is 4K60 compatible and absolutely works with Dolby Atmos, DTSX, and ProLogic 1 and 2, and original Dolby Surround. So uh, I don't think that it's going to be a scenario, at least at the moment, where you need multiple devices. I think many receivers will probably do the same. However, I'm going to try my best to get these videos out. Uh, I think I, I want to do a video about just my surround sound setup, so it'll be just as laid back and silly as the room tour, and then I want to uh, post this up, and that way I kind of have something to refer to. And then I think lastly I'll do the 2.0 channel audio video. Uh, it always cracks me up when I say that, but, um, but I would wait till that video comes out, and then I'll tweet about it, maybe you all could retweet, and we could pose the question to people, hey, Will you check out your receiver, get us the exact model number, build date, and firmware, and see if it's compatible with Atmos and the older formats, and have people run the tests, and maybe we could have a second wiki page if it's something that's relevant. Now, if every single person that tests says, yes, it, you know, it works, you just have to manually set the receiver to Dolby Surround, then you know, it's probably not worth having a page on the wiki or only having a page of receivers that are not compatible. But if people start to come back and they say, no, I pushed all the buttons, I tried every mode and I can't get older formats working, then we really would need to archive that info. But in my very limited test case so far, it seems that if you just leave it to stereo, it won't work. However, if you just press the button to select uh, audio format, then it will on older and newer formats. And then it wouldn't be automatic. I don't think it would even be possible to be automatic, but you should be able to not even, like if you have everything running through HDMI into one input, you wouldn't even have to change inputs. You could just change audio format when you change consoles. So that would be pretty cool. Um, the other or the other thing to look into then, were, were there any 
converters, maybe digital to analog converters or anything out there that do the decoding that are older pieces of equipment. I have one of those sitting right here. It's a Sony and it, no analog ins, but there are digital ins, which means if you're using left and right audio, a very cheap um, uh, analog to digital audio converter. And analog to digital audio is way easier to get right than digital to analog. So something like that, which you could buy used, and then it would allow you to do something like get those formats in. And then a lot of AVRs now have direct RCA inputs so that you could just take the surround output that this DAC has and then put it into that. The other thing that we could do is see what chips are out there and see if maybe we can make an open source project out of this, which I would love to do, by the way, because there are a lot of good DACs that are under 500 bucks. And I think that we could probably do it for much cheaper than that, especially if it's an open source thing where people could hand make their own, make them in small batches. Because with all respect to companies that make this stuff, getting a consistent manufacturing run where all of them come out good requires a lot of testing and a lot more expensive of a large run, which is one of the reasons why good DACs are more expensive. Whereas if you have somebody making 10 at a time and you have a bunch of different versions to fit your needs, then you know it's probably way more likely that you could do it on a budget. So that's all speculation. Uh, we'll, we'll have to kind of swing back around to that when the time comes. But for now, I would say sit tight on the formats. Give me to the end of the year. I'm going to try real hard to start working on this like now. But we'll go from there and see what we could do about this. Because I do think it's important. Uh, and I do think just like a lot of other things, the industry, the TV and movie industry, just completely forgets about older formats and doesn't even care. So it hopefully is going to be an easy solution. But... Uh, I think it's important that we get the info for anybody who has TV, movies, or video games with older sound formats to at least, even if every receiver on the planet still has it, you need to know how to enable it, which should just be as easy as pressing a button. But still, uh, I'll make the, all that very clear in the video. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Video. Vert Penguin decided instead of building an arcade machine, they're going to build an RGB cart, which obviously this is all preference. It really depends on what your setup is like, but I obviously love both, so good call. Uh, but they have a few questions. First, they're using a SCART switch to switch between five RGB sources. They'd like to route the sound from the RGB output to an amp. How could they separate the audio on the SCART output? So you could have a custom SCART cable broken out where uh, you, and I think manufacturers probably already have this as an option. I think Retro Access certainly does, but it would basically just be 
Uh, one end is a SCART connector with two RCA cables dangling off, and then the other end is a SCART connector but only contains the video signals. So that's certainly one way to do it. Um, I believe the switch that you mentioned might have separate audio outputs on it, unless I looked up the wrong switch, but you would wanna just double check that just in case. Um, and the other thing that you could do is try to find SCART pass-through adapters that break out audio. So, you know, SCART in, SCART out, and then you have the RCA connections on top. However, those all will come down to how well they're built, how well the PCBs were routed, and, and how tight the connection is. I've seen them well-routed that don't add interference, but if you just breathe next to them, you lose signal because it kind of wiggles out of the way. And of course, I've seen them where you plug your SCART cable directly into your display and it's perfect. You run it through one of these and you have a checkerboard pattern because it's a badly routed board that's essentially like adding an unshielded cable to the mix. So I think if you want both, you could probably even have a custom cable made that will do that. So the SCART adapter will pass audio through, or the SCART cable will pass audio through, but you still have RCA outputs. That is essentially a Y circuit which is always safe with audio, but may introduce a slight hum or interference. A lot of that might also have to do with your house and ground loop issues like ones I'm battling right now. So th that's just one of those things that you might run into, but there's no voltage safety issues of doing it that way. Next, they use a PAL Trinitron and they route their consoles as well as their mister through that same SCART switch. There seems to be three picture ratio cases. Uh, squashed vertically, playing PAL games on a PAL console, a little squashed vertically, playing NTSC games on a PAL console, and not squashed at all, playing NTSC games on Mr. So, uh, I think that could be that could be 16 by 9 settings. It could be a few things. You would want to double check that the correct voltage is going down the SCART cable, because PAL CRTs... Now, I don't... I barely have any hands-on experience with this, but I'm pretty sure that the way these PAL CRTs work is they use the voltage pins on the SCART connector to enable things like um, composite or RGB, uh, auto switching of ports, 16 by nine, four by three. So you're gonna wanna look into those just to double check. Um, in a basic multimeter should do it. You should just be able to unplug the SCART cable from your TV and use a multimeter to see which pins have how much voltage on them and kind of just go from there. Um, so I think that's how you're going to have to troubleshoot that next. If you're buying a, a SCART cable that's wired properly, it would have all the pins wired, so you would just want to check on the end of your switch. So Whenever you're troubleshooting anything like this, the number one thing that you want to start with is plug your console directly into the TV. So if you plug the console into the TV and everything's perfect, and then you run it through your setup and it's squished, then now you have two potential points of failure, the switch and the cable that you're using connect between them. And obviously you could try to swap out one or the other, whichever is easiest depending on your setup. So. I would give that stuff a try and then follow back up and see how it goes. But sounds like you're going to have a very cool setup and uh, hopefully this will all work out pretty easily. Next up, Belmont wants to know that if it gets to their point where their CRT hoarding problem has to have them spill the CRTs out of their house and into their garage or shed or something like that, what's the proper way to store them? And the answer is avoid extreme conditions and avoid wetness, obviously. You don't want it out in the rain or anything like that. But 
extreme heat, extreme cold, extreme humidity, extreme dryness. Those are the biggest things to worry about. For me personally, I live in Connecticut where it gets very cold, for me at least, but not like Antarctica or Alaska cold. It gets, you know, just cold enough where uh, I think the only things that I personally would worry about are if I bring it in from a very cold day or a hot day, it doesn't get extremely hot around here either, but I would let it sit to room temperature. And, you know, unless there was some crazy scenario that I needed to work on something, I would try to bring it in like the night before, let it sit overnight, slowly bring it into room temperature and then power it on. What I do when I store my CRTs temporarily outside in the garage is I just stack them on the shelves out there. Um, not sure if that's the best method, but it, you know that's what I do. And if I'm going to store something long term, I wrap it in like industrial strength saran wrap. Actually, I have it right here. I have my, I my makeshift shipping station here, and it's basically just giant shipping um, like plastic wrap type of thing. And the reason I do that is uh, is mostly for just bugs and dust and dirt and stuff. So, you know, I'll put like a foam pad over the glass screen and I'll wrap that on it and then I'll just kind of wrap in all the directions. And that way I don't have to worry about bringing this thing in and all of a sudden, you know, find out a spider laid eggs in there. And now I bring it in six months later and there's spiders all over the place, more so than there already are. So that, you know, that's for long term storage. I just make sure that it's nice and sealed and that the glass is protected so that when I walk by, I don't bump them together. And I've done that. I've I put two CRTs glass facing each other with some foam in the middle. And, you know, sometimes you knock into it, but the foam, knock into it lightly, but the foam kind of takes the brunt of it. However, I removed the foam, took out one of the CRTs, and when I went to put it back, I forgot to put the foam, and I clunked it, and it kind of scratched one of the pieces of glass a little bit. Now, luckily, these were junk tubes that I was using for parts, so that wasn't heartbreaking, but if you have really nice CRTs, just, you know, make sure that the glass doesn't get damaged. Uh, that's basically it. Now, if you could always go to extremes if you wanted to. So if you had something like a D32 BVM that you paid a zillion dollars for, but you needed to store it, then you might consider doing something like, you know, putting it into a, a back room with a humidifier and a dehumidifier and a heat control just to make sure that it always stays. But I mean, that's kind of crazy, right? Even for a super expensive thing. Um, it's kind of the same with cars too, right? If you really wanted to, you could have a bunch of beautiful classic cars and put them in a completely climate and humidity controlled garage, or you could leave it out in your garage and then, you know, just uh, do all the basic car maintenance. So it's really up to you how crazy you want to go. But my suggestions of don't let it hit extreme weather, bring it back to room temperature if it's been out in the cold or heat for a while. Um, and obviously keep it out of direct sunlight because that will, you know, that could hurt plastics for all the reasons I always talk about. But hopefully those were some some decent suggestions and congrats on, on starting a cool CRT collection. A couple of questions from DW623 about batteries in cartridges that hold your game saves. First, should they worry about brands when it comes to replacing them? Because they've seen some talk online about how no-name brands could only last a year or so. And also, if they do end up finding a cheap batch of good branded ones, can they add the solder tabs to them if they don't already have them? And I do have a, a couple of opinions on this, but I think the quantity that you're replacing is really going to affect, affect my answer. So let's just hypothetically say you have a handful of them that you want to change. 
20 or under. I would strongly recommend going to console5.com. I'll leave links. Uh, buying the exact replacement that you need or buying, if you're using uh, console cartridges, not handhelds, you should be able to fit in the slotted versions. And I think you might even be able to fit them on some handhelds as well. But that way you could only do soldering once and then anytime you need to swap it out in the future, just put a good quality battery in. And, you know, if something ever happens or if 10 years go by and you want to be safe, you could back up your game saves, pop the battery out, pop a new one in, zero soldering required. The only time that I would really suggest veering away from that is if you're talking about a really large quantity or if for whatever reason you feel like you're going to need to swap it out more which i don't know why or how but you know there's always a crazy use case but basically if you were like oh i have a collection with 500 cartridges that all have console battery or that all have batteries in them then you might want to look into how can you get a giant bag of uh, whatever brand battery for cheaper and kind of go from there. But that's going to be a different conversation. So, um, you know, if that's the case, if you're talking about hundreds, definitely ask again and we could try to figure it out. Maybe using a spot welder to add those things and uh, maybe you could get a really good brand without them, just like you suggested. But I think if you're talking about a reasonable amount, I would just buy the right things and either replace it exactly the way it was or with a slotted just to make it easier for yourself or whoever gets it in the future. Durf just stumbled on some information about which of the Wells Gardner brand CRTs were used in a bunch of different arcade machines. And they were curious if anybody knew of any similar lists of what arcade games had which tubes. Durf already integrated that into consolemods.org wiki, but are there other lists out there that we could mix in with this? And I know the information is out there, I just don't know if it was ever in one or multiple places. But this is definitely an issue because tubes are obviously dying. A ton of arcade machines have burn-in. So it would be really nice to be able to say, okay, I have an original Simpsons arcade machine. Here's the exact tube that was in there. And here's anything else that could be compatible. Also, um, listing what chassis was used in each of these from the factory would be helpful because you'd have to always match the tube to the chassis. They, they don't have to be the exact same thing, but there are... Um, you know, size makes a difference um, in the different connectors on it. So that would absolutely be some incredible information to have. So if anybody has it, I know Dell's Arcade, I, I know we had a long conversation about this a while back. So if any of the info is out there, um, I would highly recommend reaching out to Durf or just contributing right to the page on console mods so we can get this info all in one place. Also, Durf said they're, they'd be happy to host the audio test patterns. So uh, I think that's awesome. I think I'm going to work on that with Durf and coordinate so that when the video is released, we could have the page up and running so people could use, have all the test patterns that they need. Uh, so th that kind of makes it even easier for me doing the video because then I won't have to add all of those into it. I could just show a couple of examples and then point people to the wiki for any updates and stuff like that. So that's pretty awesome. Uh, if anybody knows a super audio CD test pattern, you could use that on early model PS3s, that would be pretty cool. It might have been, somebody might have already sent me that. So I'll, I'll have all that info compiled, hopefully by the time this goes live. All the info that I've received already. We still, I'd still love to have more test patterns sent in. Couple of questions from Charles Madeer. First, any word or thoughts on Mastodon? 
Um, I got to be honest, the last time I tried to use it was about a year ago. I thought, hey, you know, here's another platform. I try to be on all of them just to at least have people who search for retro RGB have a link to go back to where else you could find me, even though I'm not active on lots of them. And I felt like it was just another thing that was by Linux nerds for Linux nerds, which some people might get offended by me saying that, but I, I think anybody who works in a dev environment where they have to they have to work with stuff like this already feel my pain. And that's on both sides. I totally sympathize with you know, Linux command line devs that don't want to have to deal with user interfaces, but I'm also the middleman between the people that have to use these things that don't have all the knowledge. And I just, I found it to be annoying and I just don't want to use it. So if you all think I'm wrong, please let me know. Maybe it's changed. Maybe I just didn't follow the correct guide, but I just, I got the impression that this was never designed to be a replacement for mainstream social media. I think it was just designed to do exactly what a couple of people needed it to do. And I, I do like the whole, you know, I, I do like having things like Discord servers that you could join that even though technically I have a Discord account, I'm only on the servers with the people that I want to hang out with, which kind of helps prevent a lot of spam and uselessness to it. So I like that idea. Uh, I just, I, I didn't really like the implementation of it. But once again, if, uh, if you think I should give it another try, let me know. Um, if I had a choice in the matter, I wouldn't even be on social media because it's so time consuming and there's so much, uh, there's so much could go wrong and not so much that can go right. So, but I mean, it's, it's a tool that I use to communicate with people and to keep in the loop of a lot of things. And so I'm going to stay on all of them and, uh, you know, hopefully I could still keep my time as limited as I, I do on all of those. Next, they checked out my video on shielded speakers, but have an additional related question based on that. But what about fully passive speakers, as in speakers themselves that are not powered and simply only have speaker wire for inputs? Uh, same thing, makes zero difference. That's, uh, that's a good question. I should have mentioned that in the video, but it doesn't matter if the speaker is powered by itself or powered by an external amp, it's still the magnet on the back of it. And when you take a look at shielded speakers, like the ones I just purchased for the arcade machine that I have, that's the wrong size that I'm looking to get rid of, brand new <laughs> speakers, uh, four inch, same as Neo Geo cabs and Q Sound, I believe. But um, the back of those, where the magnet is, there's a metal cover over it, and that is the magnetic shielding. And that's why you can put those next to CRTs and not worry about it. It has nothing to do with the amp or self-powered. So good question. I should have probably clarified that in the video, but you know, hopefully I got you covered here. A couple of things from Jason Guffey. First, they started a project where they took an old DirecTV DVR box, gutted it, and added a GBS uh, 8200 board with a VGA splitter, a VGA to HDMI, a whole bunch of other cool things in there. And they gutted those as well, so everything is mounted internally. And they were looking to wire it all up with one DC power supply. And kind of wanted to know if there's anything to worry about. So first and foremost, make sure that all of the voltages would match. So you can't have something that's supposed to be powered by nine volts being powered by a five volt supply. Now, 
a lot of these devices do have tolerances, not all of them, but some, and some are very wide swings. I, our computers that we used to build, the motherboards could handle between 12 and 20, I think it was actually between eight and 24 volts DC powered. As long as it was consistent, it would work fine. So we ended up using 24 volt power supplies because they were a little bit more efficient. Uh, I don't think that's gonna be the case for a lot of these cheaper converters, but you know, maybe you look it up, maybe on the bottom, it might say five to seven volts DC or something like that. And that's how you would be able to do that if it had like a seven volt PSU, but you know, you only, you wanted to wire it all to five, that would certainly work. So make sure the voltages are all compatible. Make sure the total amperage is absolutely more than enough. So I would, and remember with amps, it's your power supply it, the amp rating can't ever really be too high because it's not sending amps down. It's sitting there waiting for your device to pull the amps from it. So that's why you could have something like, I'm going to make this up, but you could have a five volt, 200 amp power supply and completely use it with, uh, completely safely use it with a one amp device. But if you have a two amp device and you have a five volt, one amp power supply, it either wouldn't work at all or it would cause issues or some potential damage. So I would look at all of the power supplies that go with all of those things, add up the total amperage and make sure that you have enough. And uh, you know, there's some exceptions, right? Like if the power requirements are written in the specs, then you could go by that, but always go a little more. So if you calculate that you need six, get a eight, nine, 10 amp, P, uh, PSU for it. Is there anything wrong with grounding all of their devices, power lines together at one spot? You'll know when you try it. Um, it's one of those things where from an electrical point of view, it should be safe. But if you plug in all of this stuff individually, which you should probably do a test run for that, right? Like have everything wired together, but just power it all off of their individual PSUs and see how it looks. Take some screenshots if possible, take them in all of the, the you know, the likely places. I use Super Mario World's first level for the blue screen and stuff in that. Uh, and then wire them together and take the same exact test shots and see what happens. And if any interference is added, then you're going to have an issue and you might have to isolate which one is causing the problem. Same with audio. I would do a basic audio recording. If you have MD Fourier, that would be, or MD Fourier rated equipment, that would be the perfect way to do it because then you could just take some recordings before and after. Same thing with multiple power supplies. You don't have to go crazy with MD Fourier with this. You could just do a recording, play them both back. I like to use the white Konami screens because there's a lot of hum in that anyway. And if it's a significant difference, then you might want to isolate that as well. Uh, lastly, should they connect all of these grounding to the metal chassis? I don't know. That's a good one. Um, I'm not sure... I think it would have to depend on a bunch of different factors, but I don't think it's necessary uh, be as long, or at least to get it working. So that's something, if anybody else wants to chime in, that's a good question. Next, they have stereo audio going to the system and outputting to the various connections. What could I tell them about audio grounding in layman's terms? So you're probably gonna get some hum and that's the other reason why I really think you should do the before and after test for audio and video, because, uh, you know, while all grounds are technically shared in some way or, or another, you're going to introduce some kind of interference by doing this, whether it's actually, you know, something you could hear with a human ear or not is another thing, but I would just do some basic isolation, like run the audio signal and ground separate 
from all the rest uh, and connect them the same way you would anything else. So basically don't take the audio signal out of uh, a couple of devices and then the ground separately to the main ground pin, run the audio signal and ground together. And in fact, using RCA cables, even if you have to snip off the ends or something like that, then the ground wire will actually end up being the shielding around the main wire. So that could definitely come in handy as well. And if you get some buzz, that would be the first thing I would try. But yeah, I wouldn't go ground from audio to the same power grounds. I would run them separate, both for shielding and just some sort of separation. Even though ground is ground, the path that the signal takes will change the signal. Correct me if I'm wrong about that, but I'm like, I'm almost 100% sure of that one. Uh, so yeah, I would just kind of take one step at a time with that. Couple more from Jason. They were looking into downscaling TV shows from HDMI to use on a 15 kilohertz CRT. And they were talking about using multiple devices or possibly using GBS control. And I would actually not use any of those. I would use the same stuff that I showed in the live stream a while back that turned into a full post. And basically it's because all of the shortcomings of downscaling video games don't apply for TV. So those cheap generic HDMI to, you know, to composite, let's say uh, devices that you could find on Amazon, totally great for TV and composite video is a totally great way to watch those things. And you kind of get the, the advantages of all of that stuff. I, I would recommend checking out the post. Um, now, if you wanted to, you could sit through the whole live stream, but I really like to sum those up in written form afterwards. So that way you don't have to, to sit through it. You could just kind of get the answers right there. I'm pretty sure it would be a better idea if I also cut down those live streams to like 10 minute videos, but I just don't have the time to do that. And while that would definitely be better for my algorithm and YouTube income, I do really want it archived in written form as well. And I think while that's not as good for my, my bottom line as it is, uh, as the other version, I do prefer that if I have to choose between one or the other, I would take the time to write the post because I, I do think that having it in written form makes it much easier to search, to add little changes as things progress. So that's kind of, unless anybody has any strong suggestions, that's how I'm going to progress with the whole live stream post thing. Um, lastly, uh, it's a bit personal, but they're curious. I talk a lot about having things like ADHD or OCD. Have I ever been diagnosed with them? No, and I don't really care. And I, I mean that with love and respect. Um, I think it's very obvious that I suffer from these things. However, I, you know, using the word suffer is probably wrong because I don't let it bother me. I, I try to use it to my advantage as much as possible. And uh, the OCD stuff certainly comes in handy when I'm testing and want to double and triple check all of my results. So, you know, I, I almost use that as a tool. It, you know, gets a little annoying sometimes, but, you know, it is what it is. And, you know, whenever the, the ADHD stuff kick in, having four or five projects to do that I run between means I'm actually really productive. So that's why, you know, I don't like saying I suffer from them because very often it's a help. But uh, I never bother to get them diagnosed because I don't really care what anybody has to say about it. You know, I'm not going on pills for it. It's not affecting my life in a really negative way. If I get a little too nuts, I just smoke a little weed and at the end of the night and then it shuts my brain down and I can go to sleep fine. So, you know, working around all of that stuff isn't a problem. What does seem to be a problem is a lot of people get really offended when I talk about it. And 
you know, I, I like to take my work very seriously, but I don't ever like to take myself seriously. I find that's really helpful for my personal mental health. But that upsets a lot of people because I make jokes about myself. And when I make jokes about like my OCD, people who suffer from way worse versions of it think that I'm making fun of them as well. And you know, it's one of those things that I've always kind of been torn on because on the one hand, I don't ever want to offend somebody by that. My intent was not to insult somebody else. But on the other hand, don't ever tell me I'm not allowed to laugh at myself. It's how I cope. It's what makes all of this stuff not bother me. And, uh, you know, and with all respect to, to anybody listening that I might be offending, if that if the fact that I don't like to take myself seriously bothers you, this is not the channel for you. I'll never... I'll never change. It's how I, it's kind of how I live. It's how I stay so freaking happy. So yeah, I mean, I, I think I've lost a lot of subscribers because of that, but it's, if you're asking me to change how I keep myself happy, not, not you, Jason, I mean, people in general, then, then no, it's not going to do it. So I'm going to continue to make fun of myself. I'm going to continue assuming I have these things because I have all the symptoms of like the, you know, all the signs of mild to medium versions of these, and it's not hurting my life in any way. So I don't really care to, to really go any further with it. You know, I'm always open to people's ideas, uh, but anybody disrespecting me or anybody else for this is going to get banned. Uh, I just, I don't tolerate that. And, uh, you know, anybody that, I don't know, don't be a dick. All right. This is the best way to put it. Well, that's it for this week. As usual, if you're new to any of these Q&As, ask wherever it is that you support in the latest Q&A post. Today, all the questions were just on Patreon, but wherever you support on any of these support services, just pick the latest post and ask there, because the way all of the services work, I can't really figure out what's a new question on an older post. Plus, I really just love scrolling through in real time and doing this conversation style like we're doing it today. So any questions you have, fire away. If I miss them or if I get them wrong, you could always DM me through any of these services or just re-ask the question next week. I never delete or skip anybody's question. However, it is very common that something gets messed up in post or the most common is when somebody posts a question after I'm done recording, but while the video is still processing. So if I miss anything, just let me know or re-ask. And as always, and especially thank you to everybody who supports in any way possible, because it is you who is keeping all of this going. So thank you very much, and I'll see you next week.